because I knew that there were going to be uh, people that wouldn't be able to have access to it. So I didn't want to just uh, move on. Uh, but we're going to pick it back up today. We talked about the Holy Spirit, which I think really went well hand in hand with what we're studying in Acts. But we were in 13 when we, when we uh, the last time I was here. So that's a, it's been a long time. I want to just do a quick summary of what we see in Acts from chapters 1 to 13, and then um, I'll get into our text for today. Um, So on the screen, I've got these points that you can follow along with me. Go ahead and go. There you go. Okay, so chapter 1, we see the Great Commission Jesus gives to his disciples, and then Jesus ascends to heaven, and because Judas, who betrayed him, hung himself, there was, they were down to 11. They, they saw it necessary to replace him and have a complete number of 12, so they replaced him with Matthias. They waited for the gift of the Spirit, which God had promised them. So in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Um, from that point on, we know that believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when they give their life to Christ. That event drew a crowd, and Peter preached the first uh, sermon that we see in the, in the New Testament, or in the New Church, New Testament Church. Uh, 3,000 people gave their life to Christ that day. And then Luke gives this quick description of this new community and how they're caring for each other and having compassion, and they're sacrificing for each other. Chapter 3, Peter and John, on their way to the temple, they heal a lame man, which again draws a crowd. And so Peter in the temple, is, he preaches another gospel message for the crowd, and an, uh, about another 2,000 people are saved at that time. Because of that, preaching in the temple in the name of Jesus, that draws the attention of the religious authorities. And so they're arrested Um, Peter gives a defense in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin threatens the apostles not to preach in the name of Jesus, but the church, when they hear of that, prays for God to give them boldness, and they continue to declare salvation in the name of Christ. And then Luke gives another description. Uh, Chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit, so God strikes them down, uh, which strikes fear in the hearts of everybody who heard about it. We see a lot of healing, driving out of demons, um, but the apostles are arrested again. Um, They give a a defense again before the Sanhedrin, so the same group of people. They're beaten this time and threatened uh, not to preach in the name or teach in the name of Jesus um, as the Christ, but they continue to do so. Chapter 6, we're introduced to the seven spirit-filled men, one of which was Stephen, who Stephen is the central figure for six and seven. He's falsely accused and arrested, and then he's taken before the Sanhedrin, and in chapter seven, he gives his defense, which is a recounting of the history of Israel, and basically about how uh, the people of Israel continually failed to trust in God, continually failed to receive, they actually rejected God's messengers, and then Stephen gives this stinging accusation that the people of the Sanhedrin were doing the exact same thing and that they actually killed the Messiah. Uh, They didn't take that very well, so they stoned him. And we're told that Saul was standing there giving his approval. Chapter 8 is when the persecution uh, happens of the church. 
and they're scattered. And what we see happen in chapter 8 is the Great Commission is starting to take hold. Um, God scatters his people through that persecution, and we see that Philip has uh, a focus on his ministry in Samaria. So it's starting to radiate out from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea. Um, Samaria receives the gospel and the Holy Spirit, Philip, baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch who takes the gospel back to Africa. Uh, Chapter 9 is a pivotal point in not just Acts, but in all of history. Saul, um, on the road to Damascus, is converted and gives his life to Christ. He preaches in Damascus. He preaches in Jerusalem. He has to flee both of those cities because of death threats. We see the church beginning to really multiply. Um, we see more of the healings and those things, but we see something new here. Peter does something that, to this point, only um, Jesus had done. Peter, well, in the New Testament, there are some prophets, and there's a prophet in the Old Testament that did this, but Peter brings a person back from the dead. Chapter 10, Gentiles are welcomed into the church, so Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius' household, and they receive the gospel of the Spirit. Chapter 11, Peter defends that action before the Jerusalem uh, Christians there. Um, And we see Antioch starts to receive the gospel. It starts to really take root in Antioch, and Antioch is going to become an important city. Chapter 12, Herod kills James. He's going to kill Peter but an angel frees Peter from prison in the middle of the night. And then Peter, this, Peter kind of drops off of our storyline here because Luke is going to start focusing more on Paul. Uh, Herod dies because of his pride. Saul and Barnabas take Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark, with them back to Antioch, where the Gospel is beginning to really flourish. We left off in chapter 13. We covered this, the Holy Spirit uh, calling Barnabas and Saul to missions. Uh, This is where the first missionary journey, Paul's first missionary journey starts. We see here that Luke begins to refer to Saul as Paul from here on out. And they preach on the island of Cyprus. And then today we're going to talk about Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch, which is a separate city than the Antioch where they were stationed from. That's a quick recap of what we have covered so far. Um, I needed that recap myself before I jumped into this, so... I hope that was helpful. We're going to look at Acts 13 today. We're going to cover a large section, 13 to 43. Um, I didn't want to take four weeks or so to break this sermon down into small pieces. Um, what I want to do is Paul gets to Pisidian Antioch, and he goes to the synagogue. So we're talking, he's talking to Jews who are either Jews by heritage or Jews who have converted, Gentiles who have converted to the Jewish faith. So he's talking to people who are, who are Jewish in some way, and he is asked to share with the group. So he gets up and he preaches to them. And so I'm going to sum up his sermon because I want to zero in on the main point, which we'll get to, um, he gets to at the end of his sermon. So let me pray real quickly for us. I'll give you a quick summary of what his sermon was to this church or to the synagogue. God, um, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand your truth that we see here. Um, it would be easy to look at this sermon or read through this sermon and think that Paul is just uh, going on and on about details that might not be that important. 
Um, but there is, there is a point to everything that he discusses with them. And uh, I just pray that you would help us to, to uh, realize what that is in its full potential and how that impacts us in our day-to-day um, because it's got a great message for us today. Uh, so we pray for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Paul, um, he, he's trying to get every one of his sermons, everything that Paul does is trying to point people forward to Christ. So if he draws from Old Testament prophecy, he's going to move them to Christ being the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. He starts with the Exodus. Uh, can you go, yeah, he starts with the Exodus. And um, Exodus, the Exodus was the event where God delivered his people from Egyptian slavery. So physical slavery, and God delivered them through Moses. Moses was their leader. Um, shortly after the Exodus, Mo, God delivers the law through Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. Uh, it's often called the law of Moses. God gives the law to, to Moses to give to the people. Now, I told you that, can you pull up the next slide? I think I've got, I told you everything Paul does is to move people toward the cross and the resurrection. He starts at Exodus because uh, Exodus being the place where God delivered his people physically from slavery, um, and the law was given to them so that now that he's freed them, now he gives them the law so that they can um, understand how they're supposed to live. And if you followed along in the, if you followed along in the Holy Spirit series, you might recall that we talked about how the law was given to, um, the purpose of the law was to restore the image of God that was lost in the garden. Now we all are created in the image of God, so we bear His image, but. When we don't have the image of God in its purest form the way that God intended for us to have. He had given that to Adam and Eve, but when they sinned, they lost the, they lost the purest form of that. And so the law was given so that people could, so that that could be restored and people could see. What, what the law did was it allowed people to see God's perfection and his holiness. But when you see God's perfection and his holiness, you can't help but recognize your inability to live up to that standard, your inability and your failure to, uh, to live the way that God has called you to live. You can't, none of us can live that law out perfectly. And so it was a reminder of his perfection and his holiness. It was a reminder of man's inability to live up to that. And so it was a constant reminder of our need, or the, the Israelites at the time, their need of a Savior. They needed God to intervene and help because they couldn't do it themselves. And so Paul begins here because both of these things point forward to what God is going to do through Christ. The Exodus is a foreshadowing of the spiritual deliverance. The physical deliverance is a foreshadowing of the spiritual deliverance that God was going to do as Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And that is going to be our deliverance from our bondage to sin. Every one of us is a slave to sin. But Christ allows us, if we trust in in his sacrifice, we make him Lord, Christ allows us to be freed from that. The law the reminder of God's holiness to the people is something they can't live up to, but it points forward to the one who can. It points forward to the only one who is capable of fulfilling that law. And so that's why Paul starts here. 
Halfway in between those two things, roughly halfway, is David. Paul drops in the timeline briefly to talk about David, and he brings up David because it, it is key that David's line is the one where the Messiah comes from. So the promised Messiah was prophesied to come out of David's family. So he mentions David, and then he goes instantly, right from David, he skips the rest of the history, he goes right from David to Jesus in the text. And so we see Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law and all of the prophetic statements about him. And they would have known that because they would have known their history. Jesus, Paul's telling them, he's the one that fulfills all of those things, the law and the prophets. He fulfilled, um, uh, he conquered sin and death on the cross and at his resurrection. And so Paul is saying, Paul's saying, you've been looking for this guy. You've been looking for the one who is going to, who's going to deliver you. You know the law, you know the prophets, you put your hope in those things, and those things point to someone, and it's Jesus. And we've seen him, and we are witnesses that he, according to the prophets, he suffered, according to the prophets, he died, and according to the prophets, he came back to life. God raised him back to life. That's all of Paul's groundwork. He's just laid a foundation for two verses that are the, the thrust of his, of his sermon. With all of that, if you have your Bibles open to 13, Acts 13, will you look at verses 38 and 39? Verses 38 and 39. There's a word in this first verse, the word therefore. Paul laid that foundation because he's getting ready to say, that word therefore means everything that I've just said. That makes what I'm getting ready to say either true or important or whatever. So Paul is getting ready to move them from this lengthy foundation that he's just laid to say this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So there's the gospel message. You can have forgiveness of your sins and be made right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross and what God did when he raised him from the dead. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now listen to this. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. By him, what Jesus has done, by him you can be freed because the law of Moses was, in, was, was not powerful enough to free you completely. In him, you are freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Jews had misplaced their hope. They placed their hope in the law. They placed their hope in their ability to keep the law. But the problem is the law was never designed to save a person because a person cannot keep that completely and perfectly. It took a perfect sacrifice to accomplish redemption for, for mankind. The law was just to point forward to the one who could do that. So they placed their hope in that and their ability to keep it, but they, did, they had their hopes placed in the wrong place. It was meant to t- point them to Christ, to the one who could fulfill it perfectly, and they were placing their hope in something that could not free them from their sin debt. 
when we sin against God, we have a debt against him that we can't pay because we cannot live up to the standard he's called us to live. That's why he sent Christ. He sent Christ to be that sacrifice that was perfect, that was sufficient to actually cleanse us of our sin and justify us before God. So they'd put their hope in the wrong place. Now, I can't think of a more timely point in history, in my lifetime at least, to be talking about this. And I'm not in charge of world history and current events. I'm not, I couldn't have planned this. It's not like I was holding off on starting back in 13 so that all the timing worked and this message was relevant. But I can't think of a more timely point in my life at least to hear that message because we in our culture today Paul was telling them you have one hope and it's in Christ and we are in our culture today needs to understand that the only hope that we have is in Christ as well we are our culture is a mess Um, there are three things that I think are causing all kinds of problems in our culture or fear or things that are that are just destroying our culture one of them and unless you haven't been watching anything unless you're not on social media or watching the news or getting your news online or reading the newspaper if you completely cut yourself off from all of culture then maybe you haven't heard these things but you all know of the racial tension that's that is running rampant in our culture today because of the events in Minnesota COVID-19 has crippled people with fear and probably the one that I think is going under the radar more than the other two is at least I'm seeing it there is a persecution happening against the church. But our culture, rather than looking to Christ for their hope, they're looking, they're looking for hope. Everybody's looking for hope. Everybody's very uneasy about everything that's going on in the culture, and they're looking for an answer. But the problem is they're looking in the wrong places. Americans have placed their hope for the racial tension. They've placed their hope on man's goodness, to bring healing. And so you, you hear people pleading with other people. Can we love people? Can we, be, can we be compassionate toward people? Can we do the things that, can, can we let the goodness of our heart reign and just be all one happy family? They're placing their hope in man's goodness. That's going to fail them. For the people, um, not just in America, but around the world who are, um, who are, Fear, who are living in fear of uh, this virus that has spread around the world, uh, they're placing their hope, many of them are placing their hope in science and in scientists to come up with a vaccine. And science is great. Uh, science, if you look at science, science works hand in hand with God because God created everything in, in the universe. And so God, science is God's making. Science always points people to God. 
But science is taking place in a fallen world. It's not perfect because it's not God. Science might lead us, scientific technology and advancements, and scientists who are on the, on the forefront of those things, they may find a vaccine for COVID-19, but placing your hope in science and in scientists is going to fail us. People are placing for the, for the church that is being persecuted. Not everybody, but many Christians are placing their hope in our government to put a stop to the targeting of churches and the persecution of Christians. And the thing that further complicates all of this stuff is that Christians are divided on all three of these issues. That causes tension in the church. Here's the problem with misplacing our hope in those things. Placing our hope in man's goodness, the problem is man's heart is not good. We plead with people to, out of the goodness of your heart, do something. But the problem is, Scripture actually tells us that man's heart is evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the problem is, you place your hope in mankind to be good, and you're going to be disappointed because man is not good in their very nature. They can't be good unless they've been changed by the gospel. And even then, sometimes we fall short. We can put, for people who are placing their hope in science to come up with some cure for COVID, we could put our hope in that. We could put an end to COVID. We could come up with a vaccine that makes it not a problem anymore. But another pandemic could then arise. We know that God is the one who's in charge of when a pandemic comes and when a pandemic goes. Exodus, Exodus 9 demonstrates that. That is the plague of boils that God brought upon the Egyptians when Pharaoh would not let his people go, would not let God's people go. And God is the one who lifted the boils, the plague, in his timing. And so we could put an end to that. So it's not a bad thing to want that, but to put your hope in it means that you could be disappointed because something else could come and it could be worse. And for those who are placing their hope in the government to do something, pass laws or do something that will put a stop to the targeting of churches, and I'm seeing a lot of this more than what's being addressed in the news and stuff like that. But for those who are placing their hope in the government, the problem with that is that governments can be corrupt. Governments change quickly at times. So, you may have a government that is helping the church and very quickly after that, a government could shift and change and then the church could be the target again. So you could put your hope in that, but you're going to be disappointed. Don't forget it was a governing body who crucified Jesus and then persecuted the church who followed him. So the gospel message is the only place where we have where we really have hope. It's the only hope that we have that will actually work. It's the only hope that we have that has any possibility of changing things. If we want racial peace, it's going to take the gospel. If we want to not have fear of diseases and stuff that are that are spreading throughout the world, the gospel is the only place where you can have peace of heart and mind. And the persecution of the church 
Um, well, that's not going to ever come to an end completely because God tells us in his word that if they persecuted Jesus, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, if they kill me, then they're going to do the same thing to you. So there is going to always be some persecution. But if we place our hope in Christ, then in the midst of that, we can have the peace that passes understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians. Two passages I want to read to you real quickly that I think we need, the church needs to hear today. The gospel message is the only hope we have. And if we want to bring healing and reconciliation and peace to our culture, we need to remember that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can turn there if you want, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is where we're going to start. Paul tells us that we have been given, the church is the messenger of reconciliation. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21 Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he's starting by saying all of that stuff, that, all the stuff that we don't like about our culture, all that stuff is your old self. When you, become, when you give your life to Christ, that stuff dies, and you become a new person. Uh, 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then he told us, go and bring reconciliation to more people who need to know me. Bring them into, you have a ministry where I'm going to use you to bring reconciliation between me and lost souls. So Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. So that's the forgiveness of sins. That's how he reconciles us. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So who has the message who can actually bring healing and hope to the culture? The church has it. Therefore, there's that word again, because of everything he's just said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Somebody who goes out with a message from their king or their leader to people who need to hear it. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, if there's going to bring if there's any hope for healing in our culture, it's the message of the gospel because we've been given the message of reconciliation. And what I'm seeing too often is that Christians are becoming part of the problem and bringing division when Christians should be the ones who are bringing unity. But that message of reconciliation, not everyone's going to receive it. Some will reject it. So if that happens, if we, if we proclaim that message and that happens, then remember Romans 15, that when there's no hope left, the church still has hope. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
if we have given our life to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit is going to speak truth, the truth of God's word into our life. He's going to help us to think the way God thinks. He's going to help us in the midst of the chaos and the violence and the destruction and the disintegration of our culture. He's going to help us to think like God. He's going to give us joy in the midst of that. And people aren't going to understand that. And he's going to give us peace in the midst of that. And people aren't going to understand that. We might not even understand it. It's a peace that passes understanding. It passes the ability. It's, it's bigger than the ability for us to comprehend sometimes. But the Spirit gives us peace and he gives us joy. And the purpose is that we can, through him, abound in hope. Now, I think social media is great. I don't use all of the modes of social media. I basically just use Facebook. But people have been taking to Facebook and Twitter and um, everything that they can to communicate to people, trying to get their thoughts out to people um, I don't know if people are asking them for their thoughts or if people are, uh, or if these people think that people want to know their thoughts, but everybody's giving their opinion. And social media can be great, but it's like everything else. Um, it can be used in a redemptive way that's actually good. It can be used to actually share the gospel, or it can be used in a destructive way. And what I'm seeing from a lot of, of my Christian friends is... Um, not using it in a redemptive way, but it's causing more destruction. You've all seen the mess that we're in, the division that it's caused, even within the church. And it's real easy to get sucked into that and to take a side and to cause further division. But my prayer for all of us as the church is this. We're... Th- we have the only message of hope that that can work. We have the only message of hope that has the potential to change hearts. Anything that we do, if Christ is not the center of the solution, then it's just going to be temporary. It might calm for a while, but it will flare up again. We have the only message of hope that will work. You have a light to shine in the darkness of the cultural disintegration that's happening right now. So my prayer is that we will not be people who will get swept up into that, taking sides, causing more division, but that we would be people who when people are sharing their opinions and all kinds of stuff and they're trying to suck you in, that we would be people who would resist that and point people to Christ, who's the only hope we have. That we would be people who strategically maneuver the conversation back to Christ because if he is not the center of the solution, then 
there's no hope for reconciliation. But we can have hope ultimately in the fact that we know that this is temporary. So even if it doesn't work, there's one solution that can work, even if it's rejected. We know this is temporary and that there will come a day when we will receive a reward in heaven and none of this stuff will be allowed to take place. And so my encouragement is that we would be people who change the, who shift the conversation, change the discussion that's happening and shift it to Christ, who's the only one who can offer hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has the only, um, that he, he's the only one who can bring hope. And, and so the answer is easy. We don't have to experiment with lots of things to see what will work. We know that we need to turn hearts to your son, Jesus. You, God, are a master reconciler. You bring healing and reconciliation to relationships that everyone has given up on. I've seen marriages that there was no way either person, the husband or the wife, could bring themselves to be reconciled. And in the midst of a hopeless situation, you bring healing and reconciliation and a stronger relationship than, you did, than they had before. You are the only one who can do that same thing in our culture, and you've asked the church to take that message of hope out. And you not just asked us, you've called us to. And so I pray that we would be a church that in whether we're talking publicly um, in front of a crowd or online or whatever it might be, or we're talking privately with people and having private conversations, let us be people who maneuver the conversation back to your son. And when we're tempted to, to fall into the, divi- the division and the causing of more hurt, let us resist that by your spirit and Help us to move the conversation back to your son. Only in him is reconciliation and hope and peace possible. Thank you for giving us that message. Give us boldness to share it with those who need to hear it and those who are hurting. In Jesus' name, amen.